Chapter 4 Golden Gods with Golden Hair Our Power Source Everything is fueled by something. We know this better in today's technological age than at any time in history. Whether it's your car's dead battery, the smartphone you forgot to charge, or the kale your doctor wants you to eat, almost everything, including our bodies, needs some juice in order to function. Our souls are no different. The trick with technology is making sure you follow the instruction manual that accompanies the product, something that men aren't always the greatest at. Have you ever taken a trip overseas only to discover their electric outlets differ from the plugs on the electronics you brought with you? Good luck with that. There are all kinds of mistakes we can make with electricity. If you use the wrong strength AC adapter, you can fry your circuits, ruining your fancy new gizmo and possibly burning the house down in the process. Electricity and power are truly amazing, especially in the new wireless and lithium-ion battery era we live in. But before wireless technology was taking the world by storm, the best thing since sliced bread in the electricity world was extension cords. I've always been a big fan of extension cords. They are your best friend if you're trying to win the neighborhood Christmas light contest or if you've bought an electric weed whacker because you thought saving the money on gasoline would be worth it. Bad idea for the record. You can literally have any technology anywhere you want if you have enough extension cords. But what happens when you plug an extension cord into itself? Well, nothing happens. You get a big circle of nothing. No power, no fuel, no juice. So what happens when you plug one end of an extension cord into an electric outlet and the other end into an appliance? You get toast. You get television. You get power. The only way for power to work is to start from a power source. You can't plug a toaster into a TV and expect anything to happen. You can't connect two dead wires to one another and expect them to produce the living current of love, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. In other words, your love for your wife can't be rooted and her love for you. You can't hold out on doing nice things for your wife until she does some nice things for you. You can't do nice things for your wife expecting her to do nice things in return. And there is no, quote, magic bullet you can do for your wife where she, in response, will finally become the woman of your dreams. This merry-go-round approach to marriage is one that simply gets us nowhere. It's rooted in selfishness, it's not sustainable, and at the end of the day, it's not love. Your love for your wife must be rooted in God's love for you. This is the model of love Jesus showed to us, which scripture tells us to show to our wives. It's the only model of love sustainable through the ups and downs of life and is the only model of love with any true power behind it. We can't just look to Jesus hanging on the cross and say, quote, I need to love like that, unquote, as if Jesus loved by sheer willpower, 
and so can we. We need to look beyond the surface of that moment to discover the source from which Jesus found his love and intimacy. What was fueling him to be able to love like that? Jesus never could have showed us the unconditional love he did on the cross if he didn't know who he was as God's beloved son. In fact, Jesus couldn't even have walked around Palestine for three years being threatened, misunderstood, and rejected if it weren't for knowing he was God's beloved son. Before Jesus ever performed a miracle or preached a sermon, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and his Father's voice audibly rang out from heaven, saying, quote, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Unquote. This statement tattoos itself onto Jesus' soul. Starting with his temptations in the wilderness, moving throughout his turbulent ministry up to the time he hung on the cross, we consistently see Jesus going back to the Father as the source of his identity. People were constantly telling Jesus who he was, or who he wasn't, and who they wanted him to be. This isn't much different from our experience today. Unlike Jesus, however, the sad reality is we base our behaviors and choices around these messages of approval and disapproval. We end up doing whatever it takes to feel accepted, approved, and valued by ourselves and by those around us. The difference we see in Jesus and the model we are to follow is that he knew who he was, so he had no need to follow the other voices. His father's voice had already told him who he was. Do you know who you are? And if not, where are you looking to find the answer? There's a good chance you are looking where most men look to find their intimacy, approval, acceptance, and validation. Women. The Golden-Haired Woman. In his groundbreaking book on biblical masculinity, Wild at Heart, author John Eldridge talks about what he refers to as, quote, the golden-haired woman. The golden-haired woman is the prettiest woman in the room. A man sees her and immediately falls for her. He wants to be with her. She fulfills his heart's desire. The man drops his current relationship and pursues the golden-haired woman. He succeeds in capturing her, which brings a wild rush of excitement, passion, and obsession. After a while, though, her gold sheen wears off, and she becomes an ordinary woman. She becomes familiar, routine, and eventually mundane. The man walks into a new room and finds a new golden-haired woman. She is the prettiest woman in the room. He sees her and immediately falls for her. He wants to be with her. She fulfills his heart's desire. He drops his current relationship and pursues the golden-haired woman. He succeeds in capturing her, which brings a wild rush of excitement, passion, and obsession. After a while, though, her gold wears off and she becomes an ordinary woman. She becomes familiar, routine, and eventually mundane. Until he walks into a new room and sees another golden-haired woman. And the cycle continues from woman to woman 
to woman. Eldridge's point is that men are looking to women for mercy, comfort, beauty, and ecstasy. Yet these are things which can only be found in God. When I read this in the midst of my own marriage struggles, all sorts of light bulbs began to go off in my head. Essentially, I and men everywhere had taken women and put them in the place of God. Not unlike our spiritual ancestors, the ancient Israelites, who were constantly being drawn to worship the idol Baal, I was looking to women to provide for me what only God could. The idea that women and sex have become idols in our culture should not be a difficult one to grasp. Our culture worships sex as its God and Savior and adores attractive women with the highest exaltation. If you want to sell a product, attach a sexy woman to the ad campaign. Turn on the radio to hear song after song glorifying sensual women, some very explicitly. Listen to the way most radio and TV sports personalities talk about attractive women. Footnote. One example I remember was when I was watching Pardon the Interruption on ESPN. After going on for some time about Victoria's Secret's Beautiful Women, host Michael Wilbon said to the viewers, quote, If you don't watch the Victoria's Secret fashion show tonight, you aren't a man, unquote. Pretty lofty definition of manhood there. Thanks for that, Mike. End of footnote. Realize pornography is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. Look at the way the paparazzi stalk movie stars and how gossip magazines sell in droves. Sports Illustrated highest selling issue by far is their swimsuit edition, which accounts for 11% of SI's annual revenue as a company and is the single best selling issue in Time Incorporated's magazine franchise. The title for their 2011 edition was aptly titled Goddesses of the Mediterranean. We have turned attractive women into goddesses, and we worship them as such. This is not much different from Paul's era when he penned God's commands for sexual purity in 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20. The Corinthians' promiscuous and carnal attitude towards sex is reflected well in the common cultural phrases of the day. Paul quotes some of them in verses 12 and 13. Quote, I have the right to do anything, unquote. He writes, and, quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, unquote. But then he adds, quote, and God will destroy them both, unquote. I can do anything I want sexually, so don't try and stop me. The stomach is for food, so eat up. The body is for sex, so sex it up. The people of Corinth were also known for their temple of Aphrodite, where goddess worship was highlighted by the shrine prostitutes who served at the temple, offering sex to worshipers. Sex was literally turned into a god. You can imagine a man waking up on a Sunday morning and having to decide if he will go to worship God at church or to the temple of Aphrodite and worship women and sex. Who created the world, God or women? Who can save us from our sins, God or women? Who will never leave us or forsake us, God or women? Who can satisfy our deepest longings, God or women? We ought to realize the obvious answer to these questions. 
and this realization ought to shine the light of truth on the absurdity of our fantasies. There is no way attractive women can compare with God. To think any of these women, whether in our minds or in the bed next to us, could satisfy us more than God himself is preposterous. So why do we keep falling into the trap of seeking from women what only God can give us? Why does our culture continue to be so obsessed with exalting women and sex when human experience tells us these things never fulfill their promises? The answer is because we are so hungry for intimacy, acceptance, approval, and validation that we will seek out anything that gives us even a whiff of these things. Both married and single men need to grab hold of this concept or we will never find the lasting rest Jesus offers. Jesus goes to the Father to find intimacy, affection, approval, and validation. This is the engine his life runs on, an engine that will never fail. He needs no other engine, and neither do we. It's fine to have a secondary engine of intimacy with our wives, but she can never become the primary. She's only human, with limited love and intimacy to supply. That engine is bound to sputter out. If she's all you have, what happens then? You're stuck in the desert with no way to get out. It's the same for single guys. A fleeting feeling of satisfaction is too easily found in a woman's touch, or in the allure of a future marriage you're sure will take you to the promised land. It's too easy to believe the fantasy that the secondary engine of a woman can be your primary avenue for propulsion to convince yourself you need it. But when the Father's affection given to you through Jesus is your primary engine, the secondary one can come and go or not be there at all without stalling out your life, joy, and peace. For married and single men, if you're plugged in to the primary engine of the Father's intimate affection for you, you won't end up stalled out on the side of the road, desperate, longing for something or someone to pick you up. When even Burger King looks appetizing. Do you ever go to the grocery store when you're hungry? What typically happens is you get to the checkout aisle wondering how so many chips, Oreos, and donuts ended up in your cart. Meanwhile, the cashier asks if she can scan the wrapper of the Snickers bar you've already torn open and chomped into. It is generally a bad idea to go shopping on an empty stomach because everything looks appetizing when you're hungry. The same is true when watching television commercials for food. I hate to admit it, but when I'm really hungry, even Burger King commercials look appetizing. It's as if my stomach takes over my brain and all of a sudden the thought of dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets sounds like a delicious idea. Footnote. Admit it, you have eaten these and you still haven't digested them. End of footnote. When I'm hungry, it doesn't really matter what it is. If it fills my empty stomach and it looks or smells halfway decent, it will do. The same is true of our drive for intimacy, validation, approval, and acceptance. If we are running on empty and don't already know who we are, we are bound to be drawn to sources of affection 
which are temporarily satisfying, yet ultimately toxic. Pornography, wandering eyes, lust, fantasy, affairs. In all of these, I find the golden-haired woman, the quote 10 out of 10, and I create a situation where she accepts me. She is attracted to me. She tells me I'm valuable. The reason the golden-haired woman is so appealing is because of how she makes me feel about me. She adores me. Or in other words, she worships me. In fact, if we are honest, much of our lust and longing comes from wanting to be a god ourselves. We'd never think of it this directly, but what else is at the root of the desire to be adored? We want to have sex with the pretty girl in the room because it means she adores us. We aren't planning to actually care for her as long as we both shall live. We are planning to use her, then discard her. We want her to desire us. And if we can't get the girl to actually have sex with us, or we don't want to deal with the consequences, we can at least flirt or fantasize about it, simulating the rush of being desired by such a prize. If I feel like a loser, but the most desirable girl around wants me, then everything changes. I'm a loser no longer because she proves that I'm not. My perceived value skyrockets. The allure of being made into a god is an extremely powerful magnet. It's the same snare Satan used to get Adam and Eve to rebel against God in the first place. Quote, You will not certainly die, unquote, the serpent said to the woman. Quote, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Genesis 3, 4 through 5. Becoming, quote, like God, snared Adam and Eve. It has snared world leaders throughout history, and it snares us when we long for women to worship us. What better place to find this than pornography? Footnote, the Journal of Adolescent Research reports that 87% of men ages 18 through 26 are using pornography. The, quote, 10 out of 10 Women simply line up, all posing passionately for me, all of them wanting me. And I can fantasize about them worshiping me in every way, shape, and form I desire. Over time, lustful glances at waitresses and receptionists are saturated with these same longings. Worship me, please. Tell me I'm desirable. Tell me I have value. Saying, quote, I want you, is inaccurate. You care nothing for them. You want what they can offer you, but you don't want them as full human beings. Quote, I want you to worship me, unquote, hits it spot on. It's not much different than when Caesar demanded his subjects to worship him. The lure of having this type of power is very tantalizing. Some will push back here and say the reason they lust or look at porn is only about the naked body parts and none of this acceptance stuff. I want you to consider something. Have you ever had a sexual fantasy, either in your head, on the porn screen, or in real life, where the woman you are lusting over 
rejected you, where she called you ugly, disgusting, and spit in your face. I would wager any amount of money that you never have, and that no man ever has. With this being true for all sexual fantasies, then it can't be the body parts we are really after. If it were, we'd be satisfied with the nude bodies even if we were being rejected. So if it's not the body parts, what is it? Acceptance. Value. Approval. Faux intimacy is better than no intimacy, right? Even Burger King tastes good when you're starving. But on this same note, have you ever watched TV commercials on a full stomach? You've just had Thanksgiving dinner, and you are stuffed to the gills with your fourth helping of turkey and gravy. You, of course, have a second stomach for dessert, and the homemade pecan pie was out of this world. So you had three pieces, which you washed down with a big glass of apple cider. Wiping your face with a napkin, you call it a day, and somehow roll yourself onto the sofa to turn on the Lions game. Footnote, which they lose. The Lions always lose. End of footnote. The first commercial you see is for Burger King. Are you more likely to head to the drive-thru or the puke bucket? Food looks entirely different when we are stuffed than when we are hungry. The key to avoiding junk food isn't to tell yourself repeatedly not to eat it. It's to stay full on the right foods. If you're already full and you become accustomed to eating the good stuff, the junk is going to naturally lose its appeal. Temptation looks entirely different when we are full to the brim with the love, intimacy, and affection of our Father. Whether it's the seductive eyes of pornography, the flirtations of a cute acquaintance, or the temptation to withdraw our affection from our wife, we will respond entirely differently if we have experienced wholeness in Jesus than if we haven't. Jesus was tempted beyond what we can imagine, yet was without sin. The only way he was able to do this was by being filled to the brim with his Father's love and living in the truth of his identity as a beloved son. Being filled with this moment-by-moment wholeness of who you are in Christ doesn't happen because you made a generic, microwaved acknowledgement of this truth. Jesus fasted for 40 days, meditating on the truth from Matthew 3, 16-17, that he was the Father's Son whom the Father was well pleased with. 40 days of spiritual meals reminding himself of the truth of who he was so he could thwart the lies when they came. Whether it's in real life or it's the allure of porn, when we feel our eyes being magnetically drawn to a woman, we need to identify what's really going on. We aren't just attracted to her because she's, quote, pretty. We are attracted to her because we want her to worship us. We want her to want us. Name this when it happens. God comparisons don't typically end well in Scripture. 
Read 1 Kings 18 if you don't believe me. Putting yourself on the same level as the holy God who made Mount Sinai shake violently with fire, smoke, thunder, and lightning, and struck dead anyone who touched the mountain, in Exodus 19, 9-19, is a pretty sobering turnoff to these fantasies of being worshipped. We do have a natural longing for love, intimacy, and approval, but this longing doesn't need to be filled romantically or sexually. This is one of the biggest misnomers in our culture today. Our freedom is found when we realize we don't need someone to worship and adore us because we are already filled up with the validation of Romans 8.14 and Colossians 1.22. We are already filled with Jesus' approval for us, which satisfies our appetite so we don't have to look elsewhere. So the question is, how did our appetites get so disproportionately large for the affections of a woman and the temporary feeling of wholeness they bring? And more importantly, how do we grow our appetite for God's love and affection so it can replace the unnatural and unhealthy one? Footnote, desiring affection is natural for many, but our cultures, and thus our, appetite for it has grown grossly out of control and has become distorted. End of footnote. Like Jesus during his 40 days of wilderness fasting, this requires training and new rhythms, training to call out the lies, deeply root ourselves in our adoption as sons, hang on to the truths of scripture, and consume them like a buffet over and over again. It requires intentional time with Jesus, the lover of our souls. As you experience the freedom this relational time with Jesus brings, you will begin to long for it more and more.